But please hear this. I was at the highest table in Young Life for 18 years. Whatever you want to come up with the org chart, I sat at the highest table for 18 years. And I can tell you with absolute confidence and certainty, it is not the most important table. The most important table in Young Life is the one you sit at with the kid who's across the other side. Well, this is talk number two of John Vickery speaking to the Palmetto Region Young Life staff, and this one has some nuggets. So good. So sit back, enjoy. Here's John Vickery. Hey, I want to uh, just begin by saying uh, thank you for that entertainment you all gave us, and uh, more importantly, thank you for your uh, ministry to us. Uh, I feel like we just got here. If it feels the way to you, it's probably because we just got here. But uh, thanks for your ministry to us. Some of you have said to us, thanks for coming, thanks for saying yes. You have no idea. We go home much more full than any of you. Uh, just by being with you and knowing that the future of young life in the Palmetto region is uh, really in good hands. And you have no idea that you are the answer to prayers that people have prayed for decades. For decades, literally. You're doing young life in places that they wouldn't have young life two or five or ten or twenty years ago. And you're reaching kids that nobody was reaching months ago. So, again, you're a gift to us and been a great encouragement to us. I wanted to introduce my family. I have a picture of them. Uh, this is my family. Uh, on the left is our daughter-in-law, Mish, holding Charlie. Uh, that's John Charles Vickery, the fifth John C. Uh, in a row. So, I'm pretty fond of that little boy. Uh, oldest son, JC, that'd be me holding Ellie. Ellie's our almost five-year-old granddaughter, uh, the daughter of JC and Mish. Uh, Carol, looking beautiful. Uh, Reagan and Clark, our youngest son, and his wife live in Knoxville. Then some, you know, Michael Banner, and their daughter, Briggs. Uh, if you don't know this, you will one day, but grandparenting is a great gig. Here's the difference. You can turn that off. Thanks. Uh, when you're a parent, you have kids, if you're like us, your kids have those moments when they just have meltdowns, you know, they just, it's like, they're just possessed, and they're screaming and hollering and yelling, and it's always out in public, and you're as a parent thinking, I'm the worst parent on the planet, and they're going to be in therapy their whole life, it's just, it's just going to be awful, you just play all these scenarios. As a grandparent, when they do that, you get your camera out and you take a picture and go, look how cute that is. <laughs> it's just totally different, it doesn't, doesn't affect you like that. Um, I also want to thank you for uh, you and the people you represent and the ministry you have to children of people on staff. Our boys all grew up in Young Life, and I wouldn't trade one second of it. Uh, what they got to experience at camps and primarily got to experience from people like you. They got to grow up around people like you. And there's a stage in a kid's life when they don't listen to parents anymore. Some of us were talking about 15-year-olds like, our relationship is changing. Like, yeah, it's 15. And in those moments as a parent, you pray desperately, God, send somebody else uh, to let them know their love, to let them know, uh, like PJ just said, as a parent, you have no idea what it means for you to love our children. And so some of you loved Michael when he was in Charlotte. Uh, for Justin and Ashley and those of you that helped shape and form and encourage him, you have no idea. It's a priceless gift to parents who pray. And so you've helped form not just our kids, but lots of other kids. And don't, don't miss what you're doing for each other's kids as you just love and model to them what it looks like to follow Jesus. Uh, reminds me of what I love about Young Life. 
I told you I would do this, but I wanted to go through a, a short list of things I love about Young Life. These, uh, I think I came, wrote these when I left Young Life two plus years ago, sent them out in a shortened form in a letter, but they become more true, not less, uh, the longer I am away from the mission. Uh, number one, we'll go through these and then end back in the Gospel of John, but number one is mission focus. You heard PJ say it, uh, you're the group of people that does whatever it takes. You do whatever it takes to introduce kids to Jesus. While the rest of the world was saying, hey, we have COVID, so uh, stay in your room, stand in front of a computer screen, uh, be isolated, you said, nope. Uh, and you found ways to go get with kids. Mask or no mask, social distance or not. Uh, you've, you've gone through all kinds of effort to make sure kids don't lose an opportunity to hear about Jesus. The things we do for kids, who else does this? Who else has a transgender kid? Michael had one in his cabin just a few weekends ago who came out on the first night of cabin time. How about that for your first night of cabin time? I want everybody to call him Nancy from there forward. Like, what do you do with that? Most people would be appalled by that. Most people would just would shame that kid, not you. You enter in and you love them and you walk with them. You find a way for them to be at camp. Years ago, we talked in Saturday morning. How do we get a transgender kid? To have the best week of their life at camp. Who does that? Who sees teen moms not as someone who deserve what they got, but deserves to know how much they're loved? And you enter in and you go through great pain and great sacrifice and great cost, and you walk with those girls when the rest of the world just shuns them and shames them. Who does that? Who builds a camp so the kids in wheelchairs can go into a swimming pool? Like, who thinks that way? You do. Who goes after brown kids and black kids and white kids and rich kids and poor kids? You do. This is a rare group right here. And there's just mission focus of young life that is pure and, and, uh, and just, I pray you would preserve it. Uh, number two. I love Young Life because it's the place where God reminded me that he calls inadequate people to do impossible things. Young Life was the place that God reminded me uh, how much I need Jesus. 22, 28, 35, 42, 58. Those aren't lottery numbers. Uh, if you want to try them, good luck, let me know if you win. Uh, those are the ages at which Young Life asked me to take on a position. And also the ages at which I felt very inadequate to do it. I was too young. I was too unprepared. I was too overwhelmed. I was too insecure. And yet young life at 22, 28, 35, 42, 58 kept saying, no, we want you to do this next role. And I thought at the time, okay, God's calling me and life's calling me because these kids need Jesus. This part of the country needs Jesus. These staff need Jesus. And what I look back now on and realize is, no, it's because I needed Jesus. It was his way uh, to put me in a place that made me realize I can't do this without him. You ever feel like that in your job? Like I, if they knew how insecure I feel, if they knew how inadequate I feel, if they knew how scared I am to do this, they would never have hired me. And yet God goes, no, you're exactly where I want you to be. It's Peter on the water, Lord, save me. You're right where God wants you. If you feel inadequate and overwhelmed, welcome to the people of God. 
That's who he calls. He always calls inadequate people to do impossible things over and over. That's why so many years it feels like we barely made it. Ever wonder why that is? I don't remember any years where we had too much money, too many leaders, and too many kids coming. Never. So it didn't make us do it, it made us pray. I've said before, but ministry without prayer is the highest form of arrogance. To think we can do ministry without God showing up uh, is arrogance at its highest level. And so when God puts you in that place where you go, I don't think I can do this. You're in a good place. Because you have nowhere, nowhere else to look but up and cry out. Number three, because your life for me was a laboratory for servant leadership. It's this upside down model of leadership. I, I, I was concerned in my last couple of years, and my guess it's still true, but the number of times I heard people say, I just, want to, I just would love to be at the table one day. And I know what that means. It means I want to be at the highest table in Young Life. And I'm thrilled that Young Life is taking seriously what it means for us to be diverse mission. And I hope and pray with you that there, are, there is diversity at the highest tables of Young Life. That there are women and men and people of color and they represent and reflect all of the ministry we're doing out there across the world. Uh, we have hoped and prayed for that for decades, and it feels like we're moving toward that in an incredible way, and I'm so proud of the mission and all of you who are a part of that. But please hear this. I was at the highest table in Young Life for 18 years. Whatever you want to come up with the org chart, I sat at the highest table for 18 years. And I can tell you with absolute confidence and certainty, it is not the most important table. The most important table in young life is the one you sit at with the kid who's across the other side. The most important table in young life is that McDonald's table or Chick-fil-A table or cafeteria table where you're sitting one-on-one -on -one with the kid. Maybe they just came to club for the first time. You remember, you know these kind of interactions? And you're, you're talking to them and they say, hey man, I, I really liked your sermon. You know, it's not really a sermon. <laughs> My mom sent a text to Carol uh, yesterday afternoon saying, just tell John I prayed for his speech. Well, not a speech, but the kid goes, I, I really liked your sermon. And they go, you know, I'm not very religious. And most people would, would kind of go, oh, crud. You go, oh, great. It's that table that's the most important table. And the highest levels of young life, those tables, they exist to serve you and to serve your leaders. If that ever gets turned around, then we've got it all wrong. Because Jesus' model was, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And give my life as a ransom for many. The only table he invites us to has bread to represent his broken body and wine to represent the blood he shed. The cost of our ransom. That's the table we get to be invited to. Number four, what I love, and by the way, your job, your role, your responsibility when it comes to the highest tables in your life is pray for those people. Pray for those people. Pray for Ashley and pray for Mark. Pray for James and Marisol Rockwell. Pray for Wiley and Joe Lynn Scott. Pray for Newt and Susan Crenshaw. They have really hard jobs. It's gotten much, much harder in the last few years. Ashley's job is one of the hardest jobs in young life. And she carries a weight that you don't, you cannot appreciate. And she carries it because she doesn't want it to land on you. And so pray for all those people in leadership that they would remember why God called them. And they wouldn't lose their first love. 
Number four, what I love about Young Life is the joy of Young Life. I mean humor. Young Life does humor like nobody else. Uh, but I mean more than humor. I, I mean this depth of joy, this deep joy uh, that you have. Um, all our boys were, were, are really competitive. We have three boys, all really competitive. Carol's not competitive. There were so many times we'd get in the middle of some game or competition, she would look at me like, what is wrong with y'all? Uh, but we're just real competitive. Michael, who some of you know on staff now, as competitive as any of them. He got that from me, not from her. And so when he was growing up in high school, he would have these just bursts of rage, uh, meltdowns because something didn't go his way in sports. It happened mostly in playing basketball for YMCA Basketball League. <laughs> Again, put that in context. That's not a big deal. YMCA Basketball, right? And Michael would just lose it. He would blow up. He would slam the ball down. He would get technical fouls over and over. And as a parent, you're watching from the stands and you think, you can see it coming. You can see, okay, he's starting to get mad. I can, I can tell what's about to happen. So we talked one day and he hated it when it happened. And I said, okay, can I help you with this? Like, what if we had a code word? That's just my way of saying, you're about to blow a fuse, don't let it happen. So we came up with this word, when I would say it from the stands, it would be my way of saying, take a deep breath, don't lose your cool. And the word we had was badonky donk. <laughs> I don't know why we chose that word, but in the middle of a basketball game at the YMCA, suddenly I would go, badonky donk. And people would go, what? And Michael would, he wouldn't want to smile, but he, like, he couldn't help himself, he just gone. And, and so just a way of just, Hey, enjoy the game. Our boys got tired of me saying, why do we play? They would go, to have fun. Are you having fun doing Young Life? Are you enjoying your job? I mean more than just skits and games. I mean deep joy. If your job's not joyful, what kind of gospel are you communicating? You should be the most joy to sing it. You should be the most joy-filled people on the planet. Don't let all the other stuff rob you of your joy. Anthony Raid said it. Don't let the devil rob you of your joy. Number five, uh, relationships. We're a relational ministry, but yet what I've found is sometimes we're not good at relationships with each other. You can enter a room like this and feel very lonely. You can be an NLS staff 20 or 30 or 40 years and feel lonely. Now I want you to know there are people out there in the world who have no one like you have. They would give anything to sit in a room like this. To be surrounded by the people you're surrounded by. To get to do life and ministry with people like uh, the men and women around you. So don't take that for granted. Don't race past all these people out to do your mission. Your mission, God sent them out two by two on purpose. Uh, take advantage of the gifts of the men and women God has given you. They need you, and you need them. Uh, and by the way, it's not easy. Any relationships that last always involve conflict. You notice that? When you got married, if you've been married uh, for longer than a week, <laughs> you know there's that day when you go, oh my goodness. They don't look like they look on the wedding night. They don't, all those little cute things I loved about them, they're driving me crazy. And there's conflict. But relationships that last work through the awkward. You think about it. You meet somebody first date, back when you were dating, if you're single, maybe you're doing this. You meet somebody first date, and if there's too much awkward, you don't have a second date. 
But sometimes you can know what, there's something here I'm going to pursue. We're going to work past awkward. Because it's worth it. And so I've got to work past distance and difference and disagreements. And when you do, it's this beautiful thing that happens. Uh, I have relationships in young life that will be lifelong relationships. I've, I've realized after I've left that there's not a lot of them, but there's a few of them. And they're priceless gifts. B.B. Hobson, if you know B.B. Hobson, will be my lifelong friend. We talk every couple of weeks. Uh, we've worked through the distance and the differences and at times disagreements. And he has been a dear gift of God to me. He loves me and I love him. And that relationship will continue. Take advantage of the relationships. Number six and last, it's the place where you see the power of the gospel firsthand. It was years ago and I'd come back from an assignment. And one of the assignments where the Spirit of God moves and a bunch of kids stand up. And, you know, if you've ever been there as a speaker or maybe been there as a leader and sat in the room and there's that say-so moment when you say, hey, if you've Everybody standing up, they just sang a song. If you've got a relationship with Jesus this week, we just stay standing. This happened at Malibu, our last assignment before we left two summers ago, three summers ago, uh, summer of 2019. And uh, I say, if you give your life to Jesus this week, and we'd like you to remain standing. And you look around and you go, yeah, maybe you didn't understand. There's too many of you standing. Now, if you give your life to Jesus this week, remain standing. And they're hundreds. And I went back and told our pastor years ago that we'd been on assignment and we'd seen literally hundreds of kids stand and profess a relationship with Jesus that was new. And he was 60, 65, been in ministry his whole life. And I was telling the story and I looked up and he had a big old tear coming down his face. And he goes, I've never seen anything like that. And I realized I just take it for granted. There was an adult a work crew dad that came to Frontier years ago. His daughter was on work crew, and he, he just came to pick her up. It was the last night of camp. He came in early to pick her up, and he slipped in the club and sat there, and he watched what happened. All these kids come to Jesus, and he went and ran, and he grabbed the young life guy, and he goes, has this ever happened before? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, it happens every week. So again, what you get to see, I want to prove my point. How many of you can think of, raise your hand if you know of a kid in the last 18 months who has come to Jesus. This isn't a shame. How many of you know? Hey, look around. There's no other room like this. And just for a minute, would you name that kid or any other kid? Just say their names. There would be multiple people. Just say their names out loud. What are the names of kids that you've seen come to Jesus in the last 18 months? Who are they? Name them. And now name kids that you're praying would come to Jesus in this coming year. Just name them. Well, who are they? Who gets to do this? Who gets to watch God raise kids from death to life? See, what you get to be a part of is proof that Jesus is risen. That he's alive. That there's still resurrection stories being written. So I want to look at this last one in the Gospel of John. There are four of them, as I said. First one is his appearance to Mary. We looked at it yesterday afternoon. And 
The second one, you can go back and read it, you know the story, but the disciples are huddled together in the room when the doors are closed and they're afraid that they're going to die too. And Jesus shows up, he comes through the doors, uh, shows up and he says, peace be with you. And then a week later, the third resurrection appearance in John is the same setting. The disciples are back together again a week later, except Thomas is there. And it's when he interacts with Thomas. And Thomas has said, unless I see for myself, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus says, bring your finger over here. Uh, and Thomas sees and believes. You would think after those two resurrection appearances, when Jesus literally walks through the walls, and proves he is risen and alive, that the disciples would be out there doing ministry, wouldn't you? That they've seen him, they know him, he's alive, he's called them to now go. Just, he said, just as the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. That they would be out doing ministry. That's not where you find them. In, in just a second, who would read uh, John 21, 1 through 6a, just the first sentence in verse 6. John 21, 1 through 6a, thank you. And in a minute, we will read John 21, 6b through 11. John 21, 6b through 11. Thank you. And John 21, 12 through 14. We'll read that in a minute. Thank you. And then, Courtney, would you read Luke 5, 4 through 8 in just a second? Okay. So, they've seen Jesus twice. He's alive, they know it. You would think they'd be out doing ministry. Watch where you find them. John 21, 1 through 6a. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples out of the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, Anna, and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. And going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, they said, We'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they called nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on that shore with the disciples. Two resurrection appearances of Jesus to the disciples, and where do you find them? They're fishing. They're not doing ministry. Peter says, I'm going fishing. I don't know what to do. I'm just going to go back and do what I know. You feel like that in the last year and a half? I don't know what to do. I'm just going to go do what I know. And again, they're out fishing. The disciples come with them because Peter has that kind of influence. Um, and by the way, it was one of those fishing trips where they catch nothing. One thing worse than having a fishing trip when you catch nothing is coming in and someone saying, hey, did you catch anything? And suddenly that's when Jesus shows up. Um, it's not where we expect Jesus to show up, is it? We expect him to show up in a temple or a sanctuary or a worship place. He shows up out on a lake while they're fishing. They're just doing what they know to do. I hope for you, you're uh, shocked, surprised, interrupted, disrupted by Jesus showing up while you just do what you know to do. He shows up every day, not just Sundays in a temple or a worship sanctuary. He shows up out on the lake when they're fishing. And he asks them the question, uh, he, actually the question is the way it's written in Greek, means he knows the answer. You haven't caught any fish, have you? He knows. Again, it's horrible when you're fishing and someone says, have you caught anything? My uncle, who was a big-time fisherman, sort of taught me to fish. You, when we would be out, when people would ask him, he goes, yeah, if we catch one more, we'll have one. 
that's not funny. Fish have not catch anything. What's even worse is when the person gives you a tip about how to catch them. Hey, you should have used this bait. We just killed them over here off that little point, and we use this particular bait. Jesus does sort of the same thing. He goes, hey, throw your nets out to the other side. I'm sure they're going, are you kidding me? You stick to preaching, we'll stick to fishing. Uh, why would they listen to him? In that moment, why would they pay attention to what Jesus tells them? Well, they don't even know it's Jesus yet. You think they're having deja vu? This has happened before. We'll look at it in a minute. They may be remembering, yeah, there was another time that we were told to throw our nets out. And remember what happened then? Maybe they're thinking, I think I've heard that voice before. And now watch what happens next. John 21, 6b through 11. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple who Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad, or went aboard, and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. It's the disciple whom Jesus loved who recognizes Jesus first. And what does he say when he recognizes Jesus? It's the Lord. And who's impacted by his acknowledgement that he's seen and recognizes Jesus? Peter. Is it possible that there are people sitting next to you this morning or live next to you back home who are waiting for you to go, it's the Lord. They can't see him. They are lost in their own. Remember what Peter had just done? He just denied Christ three times. We'll talk about that in a minute. But when John goes, it's the Lord, it's Peter who's, and he is off and running. What if the people that most need to know when you see Jesus are right next to you, in the boat with you, doing ministry with you? Don't miss opportunities to speak up when you see Jesus. It's the Lord. And what does Peter do? Before he jumps on the water, what does he do? It's weird. I think he would take off clothes to jump in water, but for some reason he's taken off his clothes to fish. I don't know if they fished naked back then. That's a weird image. Uh, but he puts on clothes to jump. Maybe he doesn't want to be disrespectful when he gets there, but he puts on something and jumps in the water. It's this, it's what you love about Peter, this impulsive, don't think about it, just go, think later. And he's, before you know it, he's airborne. And he's off and running. Uh, and now if you want to track the activity of Peter, how far away were they from Jesus? It tells us. 100 yards, Right? So Peter jumps in and swims 100. Have you ever tried to swim 100 yards? It's not easy. It's like what triathletes do. Longer than that, but the 100 yards is no, no small thing. He swims 100 yards. He gets to shore. They bring the boat in. All this 153 fish, and it says the disciples bring the shore, but Peter is the one that drags it to Jesus. So it's like he's just taking a spiritual Red Bull. 
And he's just, man, he is pumped up. He's excited, energized. He's going to jump and swim. He's going to go to Jesus. He's going to go drag the whole net by himself. He is working really hard. Why might he be working so hard? When's the last time he saw Jesus? When he denied him, right? The last time he was around a fire was when the teenage girl said, aren't you one of them? And he says, no, no, and then he calls down curses on himself and says no a third time. The last time he sees Jesus with fish and bread, he fed 5,000 people. The last time he saw Jesus with bread, he was saying, uh, my body's going to be broken. Take this in remembrance of me. He has failed Jesus miserably. And you just wonder if he's trying to prove himself. Trying to recover and redeem and get back what he's lost. He just wants to let Jesus know, man, I'm committed, I mean it. But it looks like a triathlon. And Jesus says, come have breakfast. Listen to how that scene happens. Uh, John 21, 12 through 14. Again, it's Jesus by fire, fish and bread. Did he need them to catch fish, by the way? He already was cooking some. He doesn't need you to reach people. He doesn't need you to catch men and women and boys and girls. He could do it all by himself. But he gives us this privilege to be involved with him. So he's cooking fish and bread, and he invites him to come have breakfast. If I watched you for a week, would your spiritual life and ministry life look like a triathlon or a quiet breakfast with Jesus? How much are you trying to prove that you were a good choice by in life? At all those ages that I mentioned, every time I tried to prove myself, I felt too young, I felt too inadequate, but I was going to prove good choice. And so I worked really hard. And if you're a staff associate or if you've been on staff 20 or 30 years, there's still this sense of I've got to prove myself. How much of our working is to make sure someone goes, gosh, you're really good. You're a good choice. You're a good young life staff person. I'm glad they hired you. How much of it is to prove to Jesus, to overcome our own sin, to overcome all the stuff that reasons we doubt and reasons we have failed him miserably. And we just want to make sure he knows we're all in. We're going to do it, do it better this time. We're just working really hard. Or how much of it is this quiet breakfast with Jesus? For too much of my 40 years, I, I hate to admit that it was my own efforts and my own work. And Jesus kept saying, just come have breakfast. You ever been at a restaurant and just observe people, watch couples at a restaurant together. If you're like me, it's a little disappointing. There's usually one of them, at least one on a phone. Maybe one on a phone, the other looking really perturbed that the other's on the phone. Maybe, I'm not trying to meddle, but maybe you've been at that dinner yourself. 
or sometimes both are on phones. And you just watch, you think, they don't ever say a word to each other. They're just, they're just eating, but they're not, there's nothing intimate about that. And then there's that rare moment that you see a couple, and they're just, and you can tell they are, they are into each other big time. And they're leaning in, and they're lost in conversation, and you can tell it's just, there's something happening here that is rare and intimate, and you kind of don't want to, you almost don't want to look, it's, it's a little too holy. It's an older couple, it's especially that way. If I looked in on your time with Jesus, what would I see? Would I see you on your phone? Uh, would I see you taking notes for your campaigner lesson or your next in life talk? Would I see you doing your best to kind of check it off and do all the routine and go through the motions? I, I hate to admit that there are a whole lot of times that I'm afraid the Lord would have said to me, when you're done with your quiet time, I'd love to have some time with you. How sad is that? That it's a duty, it's an obligation, it's a ministry preparation. It's something I'm doing because I'm supposed to do it. It's to prepare for what's coming next. And Jesus goes, I just want to have breakfast. Come have breakfast. It's... This picture of Peter, there's a lot of... Peter gets a bad rap, by the way. He's impulsive, he's a coward, uh, he tries too hard. But this scene makes me want to be more like him. Just this image of Peter being airborne. Spontaneous, impulsive, heart-driven. I want to be more like that. Again, for Peter, he had to remember back to the time this happened before. Courtney, read Luke 5. Four through eight. See what sounds familiar and what is absolutely different. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So similar. You've seen the chosen. It's this incredible scene. But so familiar. It's the same kind of thing. Throw your nets up. They catch so many fish, they can't haul them all in. Peter's response the first time it happened, what was it? Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. <clears throat> he was so overwhelmed and overcome by his sin, he said, Jesus, get away from me. Now, two, three years later, his response is he's airborne. He couldn't help himself. He's jumping and going to Jesus. What if maturity isn't we're less aware of our sin? What if it's that we just go to Jesus more quickly with it? What if that's the sign of maturity? If you watched the Olympics last summer... The star of the Olympics was Caleb Dressel. He won five gold medals. The search staff guy back home that I work with is 60 years old, uh, was an Olympic swimmer in 1984. He won a gold and silver medal in doing the backstroke. And he said about Caleb Dressel, he said, the incredible thing about that man is his start time. He gets into the water faster than anybody. And he goes, as a backstroker, if you know anything about the backstroke, you, you, the only one you start in the water. You don't jump off a platform. So you have your feet against the wall. And he said, actually, after he raced, 
Uh, he won a gold and a silver, as I said, in a medley and individual. They said soon after he had done the backstroke, they put a little board across the wall that you could put your feet up on. He said when they did that, it made the start time so much faster that all the world records got broken. Uh, start time means everything in a race. Here's what I'm hoping and praying for you. That it's a record-breaking year for you. Not just the kids and numbers and kids to camp and all those kind of things, but your start times are better than ever. When you hear the voice of Jesus, you're airborne faster. You run to him, even aware of your sin. You're jumping more quickly to Jesus when you hear him call you, even if it's from a long way off. That this region is defined by and known by and marked by how quickly you go to Jesus. What if that's the legacy you leave? What if that's what people know about you? Is like, you know what? They're a great life leader, but there was something about them that they just went to Jesus all the time. Even in their worst moments. Keep going after kids. If you don't, who will? Keep telling them about Jesus. If you don't, who will? Young life needs you more than ever. I hope you know that. Young life needs you more than ever. I hope you stay longer than I did. I hope when you leave young life, oh, by the way, you're all going to leave young life, probably less than 25% of you will leave by your own choice. It's a sad truth. And when you leave, I hope and pray that you'll leave grateful, not hateful. That you'll be filled with gratitude of what God privileged you to do. And that your list of things you love about young life will be longer than mine. But I'm going to pray for you that your start times would be faster. That you'd run to Jesus more. It's the last resurrection uh, appearance, resurrection story written in the New Testament. But there have been more written since. And there will be more written in the year to come. And some of you will be the ones writing these stories. You'll get to see kids come from death to life. Because you've been faithful, because you've jumped to go be with Jesus, and you can't help yourself. You've got to go tell it on the mountain. So thanks for what you do. Thanks for kids and parents uh, who have no way to express their gratitude. On behalf of all them, thank you. Let me pray for you, and then Alex is going to come up and close our time. So. Receive this as uh, the benediction. Now to him who's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or imagine. In the church and in Christ Jesus in the Palmetto region, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Man, what a great gift to the mission John Vickery is. If you enjoyed this, John Vickery also spoke at our Leader Committee Weekend. We have those recorded a few episodes down. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Midlands Young Life Podcast.